and welcome to this Rash Decisions podcast, where we look at skin-related issues, conditions and treatments in an interesting and informed way. I'm Dr. Roger Henderson. I'm a GP with a long-standing interest in this area of health. And I'm Dr. George Moncrief. I was a GP, but I've now retired from my practice and I was the chair of the Dermatology Council for England. So today, George and I are going to be talking about the basics of emollients. And this is, in fact, the first of three podcasts looking at this crucial area of skin health. In the next two, we'll look at their mode of action and how to choose the best one for your patients. But George, I'm going to start with a start of a 10, if I can put it like that. Uh, it's an obvious one, I suppose, but uh, um, you'll forgive me for asking it because it's so important. Just how and why is our skin so vital to our health as, as medics, I suppose? Gosh, that's a, that's a huge question, isn't it? It is, and I apologise. <laughs> the skin is, is the barrier between us and that hostile, dry world that's got allergens in it and pathogens in it. So it is the skin that is our interface. And that interface, the skin barrier, is remarkably sophisticated and actually quite vulnerable. But the skin has, as you know, so many more roles than that. It's actively involved in thermoregulation. So it helps us to lose heat through sweating. Um, but it helps us to retain heat by cutting down the blood flow to the skin and the hairs going up and standing up to prevent effort flow on the surface of the skin. Um, it has an incredibly important immune role at those bugs or, or, or anything else that gets through that skin barrier. A first line of defense is in the skin. And a lot of that triggering of the immune system, how it works, is determined by our, our way in which we respond to that. So deep in the, in the epidermis, we have highly sophisticated immune cells. We have macrophages, what we Langerhans cells. And we got, to, we actually, interestingly, we make over 2,000 natural antibiotics deep in the, in the epidermis, the so-called antimicrobial peptides. You've probably heard of cathelicidin or, or the defensins. Well, there are over 1,800 different antibiotics our skin makes. But it also is critical for sensation, telling us whether we're going to be exposing our body to harm through burning or cold or cutting or pain or whatever sort. It's where we make most of our vitamin D. You get some in our diet, but the majority of vitamin D that we depend on and has critical roles far beyond just calcium and bone, calcium metabolism, bone health. It, vitamin D has a really important role in immune regulation and um, cancer surveillance and, and many, many other conditions in the body. Interestingly, in the body, we also make a very important molecule called nitric oxide. Um, that's produced only under the influence of UVA ultraviolet light and it releases cyclic amp now when i tell people this their eyes begin to glaze over and they vaguely remember cyclic amp from their <laughs> university days but cyclic amp is a very important vasodilator and where it gets interesting is that cyclic amp is broken down by phosphodiesterase and the phosphodiesterase inhibitor that we're all familiar with is viagra so Viagra was originally being researched as a treatment to maintain the cyclic AMP levels and act as a, a, a treatment for hypertension when we discovered it had some unusual and rather interesting um, side effects, which we now take advantage of. 
But originally, Viagra and, and other phosphodiesterase inhibitors in that class were being um, explored as treatments for hypertension. So nitric oxide through cyclic MP lowers your blood pressure. Um, but it's, the skin's important for communication. We blush if we're embarrassed and we're communicating that to, our, to our people around us. Um, and other structures on the, on, the, on the body, like eyebrows, for example, um, communicate messages, as well as stopping sweat from dripping into the eye. And of course, the subcutaneous fat has a critical role at buffering injuries and protecting our bones and joints and things. So that's just a, a flavor of some of the really important functions of this huge organ. People say the skin is the largest organ in the body. <laughs> it's been taken over by fat, I believe, in recent years, but it's still a vital and, and very important large organ. Absolutely. We do forget, as doctors sometimes, just how much... Uh, the skin does. And I'm just going to briefly come back to vitamin D, I think, because I know that you and I are both huge fans of vitamin D to the point where I think we both recommend to our patients they should be taking a vitamin D supplement all year round, not just not just in winter. And we do forget just how vital the skin is in, in keeping our, our levels boosted. Couldn't, I could, just couldn't agree with you more. Actually, I take vitamin D all year round. I just push the levels up a bit in the winter and it's it's interesting now we use light therapy to control diseases like psoriasis and eczema even mycosis fungoides so a lot of conditions are improved by those to some extent the light i'm sure in that situation is acting as an immune regulatory action but a lot of its activity is probably through vitamin d we use vitamin d topically for treating psoriasis and interestally, patients with atopic eczema, which we'll come on to when we talk about atopic eczema later, um, are usually often, very often, patients with severe atopic eczema are very often vitamin D deficient and correcting that can certainly improve their, their atopic eczema. So it's very hard to overdose on vitamin D. You have to really take pretty industrial doses before it becomes a risk, which is contrary to what I was taught at medical school. So I, I don't know what dose you take, but I take about 3,000, an average of 3,000 units, international units a day. And I push it up a bit higher than that in these in these winter months. Yes, I'm about the same. I think that's, having looked at it, I think that's absolutely par for the course. Now, as, as doctors, obviously, we are essentially scientists as well. And that's an awful lot of the the science of the skin just just touched on there but also in our practices we are holistic practitioners and i think it's probably just worth mentioning the importance of of appearance in culture um the appearance of skin and cultural norms and we we often do forget that i think at our peril this does vary around the country and also just you know within within our population uh subsets themselves and i think You've, you've experienced that or seen that many times with your patients. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and the skin is the part of our body that people see. And mm. so it's critical for how we communicate who we are and what's going on. And because when it's diseased, it, it has an impact way beyond its the actual amount of disease there. If you've got a, a, a mark on your face or spots or scars, it's the thing that people remember about you. It's the thing they notice. And so whether you've got dark skin or light skin, it it's, has a role way beyond, it punches way beyond its weight because of it's being the bit of the body that we all see and notice. I think one of the things I've, I've noticed really just over the last two or three years is that 
um, people in the media, people in the public eye who have, for example, um, port wine stains, um, vitiligo, um, they are starting to appear in front of camera without makeup, whereas previously yeah. they were. And I think, hopefully, that is a sign that um, the, the norms and expectations are changing slightly and becoming slightly more accepting. I, I think there's a long, long way to go, but hopefully we're moving the right way now and, and it's becoming more acceptable for individuality rather than um, the case where people just get gawped at. Yeah. yeah, isn't it great when you see somebody who has the confidence to do that um, and to take that stance, giving that message to the public, because I think particularly for young people who are swamped with social media oh, challenges yeah. and standards that they're trying to achieve, uh, for them to be able to see an adult perhaps who's got the confidence to not worry about this is fantastic, I agree. But it's we've got a long way yet to go, haven't we? We have. If we all had healthy skin, you and I'd be out of a job. And I suppose one of the reasons <laughs> we're, we're sitting here today is, is, is because of, you know, we are employed to some extent when, when skin goes wrong. Um, so let's have a little think about when skin goes wrong. And, and I suppose barrier dysfunction would be the, 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 the technical term. And, and I'm probably thinking about mentioning filagrin here as as part of that but but fundamentally barrier dysfunction um can arise in a number of areas in the skin can't it well it can but let's just go into what we mean by the barrier the, the skin yep. barrier is actually the top layer of the epidermis the epidermis has a basal layer where you have basal cells that create the epidermocytes just above that, you have the stratum spinosum, where you've got your Langerhans cells with long dendritic processes, giving it a rather spiny look. So uh, hence called stratum spinosum. It's there that you make your antimicrobial peptides. Then as you move up towards the surface, the next layer, the, the cells begin to develop a lot of granules. So we call that the stratum granulosa. And then above that, you have the stratum corneum. Some people talk about stratum lucid, lucidum between the two, but that's not terribly important as far as I know. And the skin barrier is the stratum corneum. Now, in some parts of the body, like for example, the eyelid, and in, and, and in other, less so in, in, um, in other flexural areas, this can be very, very thin, only about 30 micrometers. That's half as thick as a piece of paper. Hmm. Um, if you put that in context on the scalp and on the heel, it can be 600 micrometers, almost a, almost a millimeter. So, um, this is a very, very thin part of the body, and it's on that very thin stratum corneum, the skin barrier that we depend to prevent water escaping from the body and to prevent bacteria and pathogens penetrating. And people sometimes say to me, well, the stratum corneum is just dead cells waiting to fall off. I've even heard dermatologists say that. Well, I look at them with a, a feeling of sadness because do you think of your red blood cells being dead cells going around your circulation just because they haven't got a nucleus it doesn't mean that they're dead these are very active cells with an oxygen demand and they're doing remarkable things and when you think about how that stratum the, the stratum corneum creates this barrier it's fascinating the stratum granulosa makes two main two two main constituents one is as you say filagrin in fact they make pro filagrin a huge molecule about 760 kilodaltons 
And that's, um, it also produces tonofilaments, like little um, rods of protein, keratin rods. Um, and the filaggrin aggregates these filaments. So that's what filaggrin's doing. It aggregates them into a lattice. And when that lattice gets to a critical size, it naturally collapses on itself, rather like an ironing board being put away. And that changes the shape of the cell from being cuboidal to being stratified squamous epithelium with an enormous overlap, huge surface area for communicating with the, with the other cells. That filaggrin then breaks down into a whole load of very small molecules, amino acids, um, uric acid, sodium perodylene carboxylic acid, um, lactic acid, and so on. These very small molecules draw moisture up from the dermis into that epidermocyte, filling it with water and pushing its edges up against its neighbors. So it's tightly packed. The other granules are the lamella granules. And these lamella bodies are uh, producing um, a, a lot of waxy, oily materials like ceramides and sphingolipids and phospholipids and triglycerides. And they ooze out of the cell through a process of apoptosis and actually then form an oily layer between the epidermocytes. And they've got these long chain free fatty acids, which have got polar ends and non-polar ends. And in a water medium, they orientate themselves into a, a bilayer. So we call this the lipid lamella bilayer. It's an oily membrane, effectively, that coats around the outside of the epidermocytes, sealing that space. When the keratohyalin has broken down and releases the tonofilaments, they then remain loose in the cell. And the lamella bodies also produce a protein called desmosin, which converts the weaker bonds in the stratum granulosa the desmosomes into the much stronger corneodesmosomes in the stratum corneum. And those corneodesmosomes penetrate through the cell membrane and link up to those tonofilaments, giving fantastic adhesion between the cells. So you've got this remarkably sophisticated barrier where a lot can go wrong. Um, mm. You've got small molecules drawing moisture into the cells, you've got an oily layer between them. And all these small molecules I've been talking about are all acids. So what they're doing is they drop the pH from a neutral pH at the stratum granulosa stratum corneum interface down to a pH of about 5.5 on the surface of the skin. That's a thousand fold increase in acid ions. And that doesn't happen by chance. That's being done for a very good reason. That surface acid mantle, which we'll come back to, is there, one, to favour the adhesion of healthy bacteria like Staph albus and to prevent the overgrowth of pathogenic bacteria, but it also controls the activity of the proteases, the enzymes that the lamella bodies are making that break those corneodesmosomes, but are designed to break them in a very controlled fashion. It's very beautifully orchestrated, so the top layer of the cells are peeling off at just the right rate. But if you don't have that acid mantle, you can double the activity of those proteases and cause problems. So that in a nutshell is how the skin barrier is functioning. It's actually <laughs> remarkably more sophisticated than that. But that is what we're talking about with the skin barrier. And I, I'm just in awe that in the space of 30 micrometers, probably not much more than 30 cell layers, such remarkably sophisticated things are taking place.
Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I often say to, to, to patients, they sometimes roll their eyes at me, but I sometimes say to them, our bodies are the greatest supercomputer, um, not only that is existing at the moment, but will probably ever exist. And just like if, if, a, if a computer goes wrong, it doesn't have to be that the whole computer suddenly breaks down and goes wrong. One tiny chip, one tiny small part can go wrong and everything then stops working or, 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 or starts to go wrong. And it's the same with the, the skin barrier, I suppose. Not everything has to go wrong all at one time. One tiny part can just start to you know, malfunction. And as you've said, that whole cascade, that amazing lattice can just start to, to, to quietly fall apart. And to some extent, it's a miracle in my book that more of us are not walking around with, with problem skin than, uh, than, well, than we yep. do because, because of, 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 of how it works. Yeah. And there, there are particular people who are very vulnerable. So little infants, they've got very much thinner skin, less active grease glands. You also have grease glands that produce an oily material that goes onto the surface of the skin, oozes out through the pilosebaceous units, or through the infundibular opening onto the surface of the skin as a final barrier. And also elderly people. When you're older, your skin changes. It becomes thinner. The epidermis is thinner. The stratum corneum is thinner. You make less sweat. Sweat is acidic. It adds to that acid mantle. You make less grease. So there are a lot of changes going on in the skin, as well as the collagen changes deeper in the skin and the other features that are going on. But these things are making the skin barrier even more vulnerable. And as we live longer and we spend more of our time in older years, um, we need to be more careful to look after our skin, but it's particularly infants and older people who have the main problems with skin barrier. Absolutely. I remember sort of one of my first um, dermatology lectures as a, as a medical student far too many years ago, the dermatologist said, now, how do you know how elastic your skin is? And we sort of looked blankly and he, then he did the classical thing. He said, well, just pick up the skin on the back of your hand and sort of let it drop, snap it back down. It goes back fast. And we did that and we went, oh, lovely. And ever since then, sort of over the last sort of 40 odd years, I've been looking with increasing despair at how slowly my skin is now starting to go back down when I've done that. It's my scientific study of one in my life. When I'm just watching how, how slowly my skin is And particularly becoming. in sun-damaged areas of skin, because that changes the elastin quite dramatically in the, in the deeper layers of the skin, particularly due to UVA, but that might be another talk. Absolutely. Well, o over all those years, since I was a callow medical student, undoubtedly I have seen, and I'm sure you have as well, the number of people presenting with dry skin problems steadily increasing um, way, way more than they ever used to. Um, so as a general point then, first of all, you know, one, would you agree with that? And two, why would dry skin problems be increasing in our, in our modern world? Nowadays, we live in dry houses, if we're lucky. Most of us are living in dry houses with central heating, dry carpets, dry walls, maybe even with air conditioning in the summer. The air is held at a very dry situation and the skin never had to cope with that in the past. Our ancestors lived in much more humid environments. But the other thing we're doing nowadays is we're washing and we look back to just after the Second World War, most people, the vast majority of the population of the UK, for example, had a bath if once a week, uh, once a week. Whereas nowadays people are taking a bath or a shower at least once a day, sometimes several times a day. 
and they're putting soaps and detergents and shower gels and shampoos on their skin. And these are designed to degrease the skin. Dirt and sweat are trapped in that grease. By removing the grease, you're removing the dirt, but you are degreasing it. And detergents also destroy that acid mantle I was talking about. They render the skin alkaline, activating the proteases so that the skin cells peel off in an unorchestrated fashion. Um, causing microscopic splits in the skin, which then cause irritation, make the patient feel dry and unrough and scratching it. And that then causes more inflammation. And when the skin becomes inflamed, the granular function in the stratum granulosum is switched off. So the ability of the skin to make that skin barrier is now even more compromised. You're into a really bad vicious cycle. It becomes more inflamed. So I think it's soaps, detergents, and shower gels, and shampoos, and bubble baths that are doing so much of the harm. It's also having hot water. Hot water melts the grease off and can cause more itch. So I think that's a huge part to play. I think the other part that's playing a, a bit, the thing that's playing a part is probably antibiotics. Antibiotics yeah. massively disturb the microbiome. And if you've got an abnormal microbiome, you're going to get bacteria causing more trouble. And I think what we have seen in the last 70 years with the relentless increase in dry skin problems, which is not just eczema, it includes psoriasis, um, ichthyosis vulgaris is a genetic condition which is aggravated by a modern lifestyle. It's rosacea is a dry skin problem. So and all the different eczemas. It's not just atopic eczema, it's asteatotic eczema, it's contact irritant eczemas and so on, are all aggravated by a modern lifestyle. And there are things we can do about that. And that's where molians come in. And I think um, we shouldn't be necessarily blaming our patients with dry skin um, for them making their dry skin worse, because you know very often when you talk to them, they will feel that they are actually, you know, doing the right thing. They are keeping themselves clean. They see all these adverts, you know, for washes and for skin products and pH neutral soaps and all the, the malarkey that goes with that. And they think, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm doing very well. And they can be really surprised when you point out that actually, you know, your hygiene routine is one of the reasons why you're sitting in, in, in front of me. Yep, I, I love dirt, and I'm known as the dirty dog um, <laughs> because I've been on television <laughs> saying I, I don't wash. I don't wash with soap, but if you're going to use soap and you've got a dry skin problem, you should at least use a th synthetic detergent, so-called Syndet, which are, as you say, pH neutral or sometimes even slightly acidic. So that, that's a lot, lot better, but you're still degreasing the skin. You can instead, as we'll come on to in, in, in a later podcast, use an emollient as a soap substitute. Um, and there you're re-greasing the skin and you're maintaining the surface pH. But yep, you're absolutely right. Our, our patients are doing their best to keep themselves clean. And I, I have a shower every day, but I don't use any soap. And if you are going to wash your hair with shampoo, that's fine. The hair is okay. Let's wash your hair as much as you can, but don't wash your scalp. Wash the, the shampoo off your body, not onto your body. Try and keep the detergents off your skin. 
Yeah. And those of you watching this uh, on video rather than audio will see that that does not present a challenging problem for both George <laughs> and myself. <laughs> so I, I do hope that uh, that we you found this uh, this little chat today interesting, and that this overview of emollients uh, to start off has been helpful and has given you a little bit more confidence uh, in their use. Um, but we, as I say, it's the first of a of a three part uh, podcast. And we hope that you're joining us next time. Today's podcast has once again been made possible by the kind support of Aproderm. Aproderm is the company behind a range of innovative emollients that include creams, a gel and an ointment, all formulated to soothe, moisturise and protect skin affected by a whole range of dry skin conditions, including eczema, psoriasis and ichthyosis. As a long-standing GP, I haven't come across a better range of products to provide effective relief from a range of dry skin conditions. They're also simply great daily moisturisers. So why am I such an apoderm advocate? Well, firstly, they're suitable from birth, which makes prescribing so much easier. No worry about whether it's suitable for use on a baby. In addition, the whole range is free from the common irritants and sensitizers found in many other products. These include the usual suspects such as parabens, sodium lauryl sulfate, benzyl alcohol, coloring agents and fragrances, just to name a few. And the complete range is suitable for vegans and is cruelty free. So it ticks all the boxes and makes prescribing so much easier. The range currently consists of colloidal oat cream, an emollient, gel, and an ointment with corresponding degrees of greasiness. There really is something for everyone and the whole range is drug tariff listed. They're also the only range that has a starter pack available, which allows your patients to try each of the four products in the range. This can reduce the need for multiple prescriptions and practice visits for the patient in their journey to choose the emollient that suits them best, which as we all know, is always the best option. I encourage you to try Aproderm with your patients. Thanks again to Aproderm for sponsoring this groundbreaking podcast and helping us to provide our patients with the best possible care. Roger and I really hope you'll join us in about three weeks' time when we'll be discussing in much more detail how to use emollients and how emollients are working and what they're doing. So until the next time, it's goodbye from George. Goodbye. And as always, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. <laughs>